All right, guys, I'm going to have to round you in because I've kind of got a long one. Hopefully, hopefully I get it. Maybe I'll talk fast. You'll never guess um, where we'll be uh, in the Bible today. But uh, we've went from Exodus 17 and we've made it to 18. So uh, just a quick recap. God's people, Israel, were slaves to the Egyptians. God miraculously rescued them from a stronger nation. He promised them a land of their own. And this land is supposed to be amazing. He, they call it the land of milk and honey. Now, the Israelites are being led by God using a cloud. And so far, they have found a lot of challenges along the way, like finding food and water. But every time they are in need, God provides. But before we get to chapter 18, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Old Testament and New Testament that bring things to the light in our lives, that help us walk in a way that pleases you. I just pray that as we go through your word today, that you will open up our hearts. And if there's something that needs to change, I pray that you would allow us to invite the change. And if it's something that you just want to increase in us, I pray that you would help us increase it, that we wouldn't leave this room unchanged. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So now we are in chapter 18, so let's read Exodus 1 through 5, and when you find it, please stand for the reading of God. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and now, or how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, and Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro, received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where they were camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons. You may be seated. So this chapter starts out with Moses, this deadbeat dad who sends his wife and kids away, and it doesn't sound like he's paying child support. Of course, I'm kidding, but that could be a worldly perception of the situation. This brings up an important point, though, and that point is God comes first. God's ministry and calling comes before anything, including our families. Jesus talks about this in Luke 14, 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to him, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and kids, Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So who are Jesus' disciples? Well, the key word is follow, which is found in verse 27. We have talked about how faith is a journey earlier in Exodus. 
New Testament faith requires us to give up things, carry our cross, and follow the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus teach us not to hate anyone. The use of the word hate is to elevate the intensity of the command to love God above our families and above ourselves. This is just how they talked back then. So if someone wanted to learn from the Messiah, they would have to follow him and hear him speak. And if your family wanted to come with you, you would have to choose between Jesus and them. Or sometimes you could even get disowned back then for following Jesus. Now we are led by the Spirit, and sometimes God calls us to do things our families don't agree with. Now it's best to try to get your family on board, but if you can't do that, you have to choose God over your family. Now, if someone is a provider, we need to make sure our families have what they need. And we see this in 1 Timothy 5.8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Starving your family is not following Jesus. That's why Moses sent his family to his father-in-law's house. He made sure they were taken care of. And we can see here what a blessing our families are when God is using them. We see this with Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. So try to get your mind uh, that he's not that guy from the Beverly Hillbillies. This is super nice guy, father-in-law figure. God uses Jethro to take care of Moses' family. He uses Jethro to unite Moses with his family. Then God uses Jethro to help an overwhelmed Moses. And we see this in Exodus 18, 13 through 22. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as a judge for the people. And they stood around him from evening or from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw that Moses was, was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you do this alone and sit as judge while all these people stand around from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Now listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and instructions and show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as a judge for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide for themselves that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Now, can you imagine that? Have you ever had a job that just takes so much out of you? People arguing and disputing and putting a shift from morning till evening. I hope we all have Jethro's 
that we can talk to, people that are wise and give us ideas because they absolutely care about us. Not only do I hope we have those people in our lives, but I also hope we can be those people for each other. So we see Moses is chosen to judge people, which also brings up a good question. Is judging only for the Old Testament? Do Christians judge like they did in Exodus? Well, our government is set up differently than when Moses was a judge. And the government even was set up differently when Jesus was on the earth. So there definitely were some differences. But let's look at the New Testament on what it says about judging. And we'll start with Luke 6, 37 through 42. And this is Jesus speaking right here. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Will be poured out into your lap. Hopefully you don't give coffee. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when you yourself fail to see a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. By the way, this is probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible because people only usually quote like a very small portion. Probably just the don't, do not judge. They don't really look at the rest of it. Um, but some people, especially unbelievers, say this to Christians like, hey, don't judge. You can't say anything about sin. Don't judge. But also some people who follow Jesus see this verse and say, well, that means you can't point at anybody's sin. There is this idea that somebody created that we are all a bunch of sinners and we're all slaves to sin every day. And with this idea, we all have planks in our eyes, bumping into each other and falling into ditches. Jesus tells us, don't make a judgment until we get the planks out. We aren't hopeless. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. He came to remove the plank so we can see and lead others in the way of Jesus. If we have a plank in our eye, we need to remove it so we can help each other. If you think this verse means not to make any judgment or point out any sin, there's a big problem with that. Because when you tell someone to stop judging people, you are judging them. Here's what Paul says about judging in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. If any of you has a dispute with another Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more of these things of life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? 
I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Paul says we need to have people with the ability to judge. Christians shouldn't be dragging each other to court. We need people who are loving and able to mediate between people who are disputing. Also, this would take a culture that believes God's people are better equipped than the judicial system. Paul mentions we are supposed to be equipped to judge angels. That means we should have people among us who are equipped to judge spiritual matters. Paul also mentions if we are equipped to judge these spiritual matters, then it shouldn't be a problem to judge worldly matters. So if we know God's people are supposed to judge, how do we judge? Number one, stop being sinful. We bring judgment on ourselves if we do the same things that we're telling people not to do. If you think about it, that's a great attitude to have. Because if you're one of those people who expect impossible out of everybody, this will keep you in check because you will have to think to yourself, hey, am I even holding myself to the same standard? Jesus said, if we are in sin, we are blind leading the blind. Jesus is the light of the world and the word of God. If we study and obey the word of God, it will light our path so we can continue on this faith journey. I got to tell you, I have a history of getting things in my eye. When I uh, used to deliver appliances, I think I got rust in my eye. I think I did that for 10 years. I think I got rust in my eye twice. Um, When I was a kid, my cousin took my hat and threw it under this old rusty car. And yes, I got rust in my eye again. And then, so I had to go to the doctor and they had to numb my eye. And they used a scraping tool to uh, maneuver the rust out of my eyes. Talk about sweating because you had to hold still. And I always felt like I was one sneeze away from wearing an eye patch the rest of my life. (laughs) Now, let's just imagine your eye doctor came in wearing dark shades and was feeling around with one of those canes with the orange tape on it. Do you think I would want that doctor touching my eye? You shouldn't want to listen to someone who accepts the lifestyle of the world and sinners. That is not spirit-led, and it puts everybody in danger. How to judge. Number two, as Jesus said in Luke, be forgiving. If you're going to point out sin, do it with the readiness to forgive. Jesus says we won't be forgiven if we don't forgive others. He goes on to say, whatever measure we use against somebody, it's going to be used against us. How to judge. Number three, do not judge by mere appearance, as it says in John 7, 21 through 24. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge correctly. 
See, the Pharisees during the time of Jesus were selfish. They didn't seek God to understand his law. When, they judge, when we judge, we really have to look at the situation through the eyes of Jesus and not our own. We have to look at things with our spiritual eyes. And even when we read the scriptures, we have to ask God to help us to interpret the meanings. That way we don't make the same mistakes as the Pharisees and try to prevent God from healing somebody or doing something else that's in his will. Because how we view the scriptures. Now, the Pharisees viewed the scriptures in a way to get what they want. They tried to use them to get rid of Jesus. How to judge. Number four, judge with the right motives. A good example of this is found in Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Have pure motives speaking up for people who are less fortunate. Sometimes we are called to be the advocates. When we have the right motives, we are always trying to build people up and not tear them down. Now, that doesn't mean that you always say nice things, but we should try to be as gentle as we can, as Paul talks about in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. As Paul says in these verses, pointing out sin in a gentle way is a part of carrying each other's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. We should always be first concerned with the spiritual ramifications. We should ask ourselves, is this if this person continues in sinning, are they in danger of eternal punishment? We should ask ourselves, if this person is caught in sin, are they influential? If we love them, we should warn them. We also should encourage each other to remind each other that we can do this, that Christ died to clean us, and he gives us his riches, which includes helping us be free from sin. We should pray for each other. There's no help for us, though, if we try to conceal our sin, as it says in Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. How to judge number five. Don't go beyond your jurisdiction. Don't go beyond your authority God has given you. God is the ultimate judge. He has given us his word, but we can't go beyond that. There are some gray areas, but for God, there are no gray areas. But for us, we don't know everything. We shouldn't feel like we have to know everything. And sometimes people ask questions of things like, why do bad things happen to good people? We shouldn't try to speak on his behalf beyond what we know. I mean, we do know some things, like we know God is good and he does nothing evil. And he's got specific plans that we can't even understand. But why he makes specific decisions, a lot of times we don't know and we may never know. We really shouldn't be telling anyone that we know without a doubt that they're going to heaven or hell. So when people ask what happens to people in a remote highland 
or people with mental illness, don't try to come up for an answer instead of letting God answer them themselves. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you. Who are you to judge your neighbor? How to judge number six. Start with yourself. As it says in Psalms 139, 23, and 24, this was the psalm we read earlier, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. We should be devoted to searching our heart and learning the teachings of Jesus. When we are committed to this as a way of life, the chances of of someone judging us, go down significantly. When we judge ourselves with the grace that God gives us, it builds us up. This is a part of how we are being perfected. And being perfected is what judging each other's, each other, <laughs> that sounded all hillbilly, each other's, sorry. Um, judging each other in ourselves is about perfection. That's what it's all about. That is the goal, as we see in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husband, love your wives just as, a Christ, just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish but holy and blameless. So let's allow Jesus to make us holy and blameless. Let's submit to him and allow Jesus to use whatever methods he wants to make us blameless. Whether he uses, he makes us blameless through reading his word or by someone who loves us pointing out our flaws. I don't know about you, but I want to be presented to God as a radiant bride and not some kind of wildebeest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your teachings and your words. I just pray that as we go through our days, that we would stop and we would ask you to reveal things in us that you want us to change, that you would help us talk to each other and point out things that maybe we don't even notice because sometimes when you're in a situation you don't even realize what you're doing is wrong. So I just pray that you would put loving people in our lives, uh, that we would correct each other in a gentle, kind, and loving way if we need to. And I pray out of everything, the most important part of this is that you would help us be blameless. You would present us as a radiant church that you speak about in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.